Let's bow our heads in prayer together. God, it is no accident that we gather together, that you have brought each one of us here because you are in the process of shaping us to be like Jesus. Would you shape us now by your word to live for you in a relationship of love with you and with your people made whole by the precious blood of our King, our Lord Jesus. It's by His blood and for His glory that we pray. Amen. A couple of months ago, Molly and I were driving home from the Twin Cities at the end of one of those nasty snowstorms that we had. Most of the people on the road were driving really carefully that They were driving much slower than what would be normal, trying to stay in a straight line so you didn't end uh, end up accidentally in the ditch. Most people were driving carefully. I was paying such close attention to the cars, the road right in front of me, that I didn't recognize this luxury vehicle come flying up behind me in the passing lane until it whizzed past me going about 80 miles an hour. Terrible Dangerous driving in such conditions, let alone, or in normal conditions, let alone such a bad winter storm. I just thought to myself, how arrogant this guy to think that he owns the road, that he gets to define the rules for himself and put so many in danger. I literally prayed at that moment that God would put him in his place, reveal that there is a greater authority over him. I did pray that God would do it gently by putting him nicely, landing him into a snowbank on the side of the road. And I was, I totally forgot about this guy. Just a few minutes later, we were driving on and having a conversation until we come around a curve and there up ahead of us is a police car on the side of the road with its lights flashing and there next to him in the snowbank is that same car. Ah. The sweet taste of vindication. (laughs) Molly actually told me, quick, pray for our adoption, that we would get a baby now. (laughs) God, God was listening. But in that moment, the reality of God's laws of nature, friction, gravity, momentum, asserted their authority on him, and he was immediately stopped. In the first century in Israel, there were some other guys who thought rather highly of themselves. They twisted the rules to fit their own agenda. They whizzed past others in life, putting them and others in danger. But God promised His people that one day they would be stopped. In Psalm 63, the writer foretells of a king who would come, who shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by Him shall exult, and the mouths of liars will be stopped. Psalm 107 tells of the justice that God will bring. The upright will see it and be glad in the wickedness. All wickedness shuts its mouth. So in our text today, we will see that Jesus fulfills these texts, these promises, when He arrives with a greater authority than they ever expected, leaving them all speechless. Their mouths are stopped before Him. For a couple of years now, Jesus has been traveling around Israel teaching 
And this, his ministry is finally reaching its climax as he arrives in Jerusalem. And he asserts much more clearly than ever before where this great authorities come from. Everyone's been wondering, how is he doing these powerful miracles? How does he teach with such amazing wisdom and insight? Who is this guy? And the answers are getting more clear in this moment. We see that he is bringing the king's justice, the Messiah's justice, and all mouths will be stopped. And when he arrives, he gives us a call as well. The call for us today from this text is that we need to stop questioning Jesus and trust him to work his love for your eternal joy. Oftentimes, things in life just don't seem to add up. Every day there's contradictions at every turn. How does this work? What's happening, God? And we never seem to blame our own lack of understanding or our own inability to see the world properly. It's easier just to quickly blame God. You've got it wrong. You're you're not doing justice in my life. But Jesus, as the King, commands us to stop doubting and to trust Him to satisfy our deepest desires. So in these three parts in our large text, we'll put that idea all together. First, Jesus mercifully answers one of our questions by reminding us in verses 23 to 33 that we were made to live for God. And then in verses 34 to 40, he elaborates that point by saying that we were made to live for love. But we know that we can't do it. We trip and fall over this problem all the time. But Jesus silences our anxiety and tells us we are made to live in Christ. In Him we can stop doubting and find the eternal life of love with God. So let's unfold this story, starting in verse 23, reminding ourselves that we were made to live for God. The same day Sadducees came to Him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked Him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Up to this point, mostly we remember Jesus interacting with Pharisees. We remember Pharisees as his primary opponent. But here we see the Sadducees getting in in some debates with him a little bit more. The Sadducees were the party that controlled the temple. They're the high priests. They're the ones whose job was to interpret the law on behalf of the nation and show them what faithful law-keeping looks like. In fact, they emphasized the first five books of the Bible so much that they thought the law was the only inspired part. They ignored the prophets and the writings, the later parts, as simply commentary on, on God's Word, not God's Word itself. So this leads them to deny the resurrection because it's a doctrine that's developed later on in scriptures. It's, there's hints of it early on in the law, but it's more fully developed later. The law, they thought, Genesis through Deuteronomy, emphasized more life in this world. Specifically, life of Israel, God's people in the land. God did some amazing things to pull them out of the neighboring nations, put them in this land, and he gave them the law to say, Here you go. Here's how I want you to live. And since then, he's been rather uninvolved, it seems. They're rather deistic in their thinking. 
And now this Jesus shows up and starts drawing a crowd together, gaining influence by teaching people that there's some wonderful future kingdom in which he's the king and their lives are going to be so great. It's like the presidential candidate offering free candy, free college tuition. And these guys are sick of it. You can't be promising them all these things. So it's time to get rid of him. They devise a question to trap him in his foolishness. And the law they refer to in verse 24 is found in Deuteronomy 25. It's later called leveret marriage. We don't use that word too often anymore. It's a Latin word that means brother-in-law. So the law required that if a man and a woman got married, and before they had any kids, the husband died, unfortunately, sadly. But he has a brother who's supposed to come in and marry, marry the woman so that she could have children. And this seems kind of strange to us in our culture, but back then, it was a, a wonderful provision for women in a very patriarchal society. Land, property was owned by men. And then it would be passed down as an inheritance to his sons. So if a woman didn't have a husband or sons, she was in trouble. She was destined to live in poverty, have to become a slave of some other landowner just to survive. So this law was a wonderful mercy providing that the brother would come in and give her a son so that she could keep the land in her family, in her husband, first husband's name, and her descendants would have a place to live. Now the Sadducees grab a hold of this law and they use it to show the ridiculousness of Jesus' idea of life after death. They really exaggerate it with seven husbands just to show the utter foolishness of Jesus and his theology. Because if Jesus is right about there being another life in the future, then uh, God's law contradicts itself there, buddy. Because on the one hand, you say, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. You only get one husband. But you're saying in the life to come, this good life, that he's gonna, she's going to have seven husbands? Hey, Jesus, God's not quite fitting into your resurrection box. That's a really cute idea, but it just doesn't work. But Jesus strongly rebukes them in verse 29. You are wrong. Say that to the smartest law keepers in the country. You are wrong. You know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is God of the not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. How often do we, in our doubts, tend to think that God has got it wrong? We think we know the Bible pretty well, and we got a pretty good grasp on how the world should work. But in our lives, it often doesn't look like they're fitting, that it's going the way it should. And when it doesn't fit together in our minds, we blame God. He's doing it wrong. We accuse Him of not getting our lives right. But Jesus says, when we do that, we reveal that we don't know the power of God nor His Scriptures. He's 
far more capable of fixing this beyond our imagination than we can even imagine. And if He promises in His Word that He can and will do it, our job is to trust it. But we are so blind in our own sin. We just can't see outside of our circumstances. I've heard former alcoholics tell me that when they're in the midst of their addiction, they think, I've got this under control. No big deal. And people try to confront them and say, you're messing your life up and you're hurting other people. You need to stop it. And they go, no, no, I've got it under control. It's not a problem. Go help that other guy. Look at him. He's really got it bad. You should go talk to him. But it wasn't until much later when they finally had some sobering moment that pulled him out of it. They go, oh my goodness. I was living in a fantasy world. That's us in our unregenerate state. We tend to elevate our own knowledge and our own power, our abilities in this world, and greatly diminish God's. And so Jesus begins to explain His response, His answer, focusing on the power of God in verse 30. He's saying that God made this, is making a new world beyond our understanding. We're like fish in a little fishbowl. All we understand is the water all around us, this corrupt, sinful world. And He says, there's a big world outside of there and we just can't comprehend life outside the water. Or like the addict who can't comprehend life outside the next drink. God is so powerful. He can take this world and this little picture of marriage that we have and expand it to be a worldwide phenomenon. The angels in heaven were made to dwell in and delight in the presence of God and we are going to be brought into that experience with Him. Deep, lasting intimacy with God. And marriage is just this tiny, tiny picture of that grand reality. I really have struggled in my life with this text. I, I don't like the idea of it. It's somewhat discouraging because if you're in a good marriage, you love the intimacy, the joy, the partnership, the comfort, the pleasure that you have, and you want it to last forever. And many of you, I know, long to participate in this reality. You want to get married because inside of you, you, you know you're hardwired for intimate joy and you fear that if you don't get married in this life, then you'll never get to experience such, such wonderful pleasures. But Jesus' words are meant to give us hope in something far better. Marriage was never meant to be the fulfillment of those desires for intimacy. It's just a picture of a greater reality that in Him, when we are with God, all the desires of our hearts are finally satisfied. We don't have less when we come to Christ. We get so much more. It's not less than the best marriage. It starts there and expands it. One commentator says, Jesus does not say that love between those who have been married on earth will vanish, but rather implies that it will be broadened so that no one is excluded. We can't comprehend what in the world that's going to look like, but it's going to be amazing. 
Life with God, he's telling us, is not where your desires go to die, but where they fully come alive. Life with God is not where your desires go to die, but where they fully come alive. That's what Jesus says in verse 32, while he's quoting the scripture. He quotes God talking to Moses at the burning bush at the beginning of Exodus. Remember, he needs to quote one of the books of the law because he's talking to the Sadducees. So he pulls out God telling Abraham or God telling Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. How how does this make his point? Well, these men have been dead for hundreds of years, haven't they, before Moses? God made a covenant with Abraham a long time ago, hundreds of years ago. And now that he's dead, he's telling Moses that he is going to live in accordance with that covenant. He's going to keep those promises. But normally when you make a covenant, if one of the parties dies, then the covenant is void. It's done. But God is still acting in accordance with his covenant promises, so Abraham must still be alive, proving there's life after death. But Jesus' point is more than simply to prove some doctrine. It's to motivate faithful, hopeful living in light of that eternal promise. We were made to live with God. He's not God of the dead, but God of the living Life is more than just a meager existence here on earth where you're born this broken, needy little child. Your parents pour into you to give you some instruction. You get a job. You get married. You have your own kids. You pass on your instruction. You die. And the whole thing repeats itself. Life was is made for so much more than that. That's what the critic of Ecclesiastes was trying to figure out. It's got to be more than just eat, drink, and be merry. Paul makes the same argument in 1 Corinthians 15. If the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. We are to be pitied. We are pathetic without the resurrection. Why are we just wasting our lives here in this world, denying ourselves all the time, showing up to church every Sunday morning, when this is all there is? Go out and have some fun. But there is life after death. These bodies will be raised, either judged and sent to be eternally condemned or fixed and made to experience a life far better than this one. So when your life disappoints you or you feel like your desires just keep going unsatisfied, don't settle or put your hope on things in this world. Hope that your world, your life gets better now. Trust that you were made to live for God and He's actively working to shape you to satisfy your heart's longings in relationship with Him. C.S. Lewis wrote, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. That other world we were made for is one where we are in joyful relationship with the living God. And the next section then is meant to clarify that a little bit more. We we hear we're supposed to live in relationship with God, but what does a relationship with God look like? Are we just some kind of ethereal beings floating around in clouds? Well, God gave 
his people a long time ago a law that says this is what relationship with me should look like. And if we understand the law correctly, we know that we were made to live for love. So go back to verse 43. When the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, that is an expert in the law of Moses, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? This scene begins in a quite astounding way. Because the Sadducees, they were just silenced in their lack of Scripture knowledge. This is just incredible. And somehow this country boy comes down from Galilee and takes and outsmarts the high priests. He's got a greater, more wise rabbinic interpretation of the law than anyone's ever heard. And normally a Pharisee would be just delighted, elated to see a Sadducee put in his place. The two were like political rivals, like Democrats and Republicans, always trying to find ways to shame, mock, and displace each other. But their hatred for Jesus is mutual, so they team up together. They come to the defense of one another to get rid of him. And this lawyer steps forward to prove this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. It's all smoke and mirrors. I got just the thing to finally show that he doesn't know what he's doing. So this so-called expert in the law, he says, here's the topic. Verse 35, what is the great commandment in the law? This is no innocent question. He doesn't really want to know. There's been this ongoing debate for generations over this very question. Heated rivals, Pharisees, Sadducees, many others have their own interpretation on which, which are the weightier matters in the law. They would break the commandments up into various topics, various subjects, and try to figure out which one was more important than the other. So just in case you come upon a circumstance in your life where two laws apply and you can't do them both, which one should we give more of our attention to? And they're thinking, if we can get Jesus to answer this question with some kind of boldness, we can trap him. We can show that he's diminishing God's law. We can get him to take sides and someone will finally be offended and have enough ammunition to condemn him. But Jesus dodges their fiery darts with an even better understanding of the law. He quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point of all 613 commands is love. It's to show you what love is. It reveals how God is building a relationship of love with His people in such a way that it'll just pour over out of them into other people. Every section, no matter how you split it all up, is unified as one law of love. Love for God and love for others. Jesus says in verse 40, on these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. The whole Bible is written that you would read it through the lens of love for God and love for others. If you're not opening it up and reading and understanding how to love better, then you're not reading it properly. You can fulfill the entire law 
by loving God and loving your neighbor with everything you have in every part of your being. Sounds easy, right? Not really. So God gives the law, as Paul says, as a schoolmaster, a guardian to guide us to where we can find righteousness. It's like training wheels. The law, written law is like training wheels. You put it on your bike and it helps you do it. It guides you along the path until it becomes innate. It becomes internal. As in the Holy Spirit helps you do it without the training wheels. But every time we hop on that bike, even with the training wheels, we immediately veer into the nearest parked car. So it's constant reminder that we can't do it even with it written right there in front of us. We're just left wondering, how can we do it? How can we ever accomplish this relationship of love with God? We can't. But the next section shows us one who can. To be capable of love, we first are made to live in Christ. Turn to verse 41. Now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone ask him any more questions. The the previous sections have all begun with the Pharisees and Sadducees asking the questions. They've failed to defeat Jesus with their hostile questions, and now they have nothing but shame to show for it. Jesus has them right where he wants them. He's going to put the final nail into the coffin of their dead and destructive leadership. And this is the perfect question to do it because they all know and long for this Messiah, this King who's going to come and defeat the nations and restore Israel to its glory. There's scriptures everywhere that they all memorized reminding them that the Messiah will look like this. He's going to do this for us. And so Jesus wants to know what they think. How do you put all that together? Particularly, whose son is he? He asks in verse 42. This is a rather easy question to answer for them, they think. How silly that Jesus thinks this is such a profound question. Everybody knows this. The Messiah, the Christ, is the son of David. We all know 2 Samuel 7. He promised David that one of his offspring would sit on the throne forever, ushering in a reign of peace. Every good Jewish person knows that. And then he turns their world upside down, though, with this interesting interpretation of Psalm 110, a very popular messianic text. David was writing about this coming king, this Messiah. But there's this minor detail that makes a huge point. David, the one who writes it, calls the Messiah his Lord, who's also his son. David says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, it's all caps in your Old Testament, meaning God, is going to give dominion over all the earth to the son of David, the Messiah, 
whom he calls Lord, my master, my king. So how is that possible? How, how can the Messiah be David's son? It would be much more appropriate for a son to call his father and his grandfather and all the way up the line, the king, the Lord. That's just the way these authority structures work. That's the respectful way to do it. So how can this be? Unless the son of David is also more than the son of David. Jesus is making a claim to authority much higher than King David ever had. The crowds know that Jesus is a son of David. That's just a genealogical fact. You can go to the temple and look at the genealogical records, trace him all the way back through to King David. He was born in Bethlehem. But Jesus is saying, I'm more than just a son of David. I have more authority than David did. And if that's true, then he is the one that the Psalms foretold who will stop their mouths. That's what we see in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. By claiming to be the Son of God, he just dropped the mic. Everyone is silenced. His doubters are shut down. His critics are muzzled. Even his own followers are standing there with their mouths gaping wide open. What could you possibly say when you are in the presence of such power and authority and wisdom? All of this has been building up to this point, the great reveal that Jesus is more than the Son of David. He is the Son of God. Where all your doubts all your fears, all your questions, and all of your rebellion stops in Him. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And He will judge every single word and deed. He knows the law better than any Pharisee or Sadducee or pastor or scholar. He's going to hold our lives up to the mirror of this law and expose every secret thought of our heart. But that's someday in the future. This time, He wasn't sent for condemnation. He came to fulfill the law in order to make us able to live for love. Our lives weren't designed for eternal death, but we were made to live for God. And the only way to do this is to live in Christ. He's the only one who fulfilled the law of love for God and loving others as Himself. He's the only one to live in perfect harmony with God. So the only way that we can come into God's presence is by Him through King Jesus, the Christ, the Son of David. He did it perfectly. He achieved all authority in heaven and on earth. He has the right to judge us, yet instead of destroying us as His enemies... He loved us while we were rebels. He died on the cross, bearing the punishment that rebels deserve. And He defeated death in His resurrection, promising us a resurrection life so we could experience what all the joyful shadows in this life are pointing to, a more satisfying reality in the life to come. Every single thing your heart desires in this world is yours. If you turn from your attempt to try to satisfy them yourself, 
in this life and trust Him to satisfy them Himself in the life to come. Stop doubting Him. Stop questioning Him and making excuses for why you can't follow Him. Surrender to His authority. That's not to say that we can never ask Jesus a question. We can't ask God for things. That's what prayer is all about. Jesus highlights the idea of a child asking a father for something in Matthew chapter 7. This is the honest question of a trusting child. Do you love me? Will you care for me? And God is delighted to hear those requests because they come in faith that He is good and He is able to take care of you. But the other kind of questioning is a doubting question from a skeptic. Thinking, I don't think God's really going to do this. I don't think He really cares for me. Too often we join the Sadducees and Pharisees in doubting God in this way. They're not the questions of faith, but questions to cover sin and shame. But the answers to all of our questions are found in His Word. The unchanging, trustworthy promises of God. He kept all the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, fulfilled them in Christ. We see that happen over thousands of years. We can be certain that He will take care of our future as well. So read His Word and trust there the King that is revealed, King Jesus, who stops our doubts and gives us confidence in His control. We can be confident that He is in control even if you do remain unmarried. Even when you don't have the children you've dreamed of. Or even when the temptations to indulge in sin sneak up on you. Even when you think you deserve a better life, a better home, a better job. Or even when Satan whispers in your ear, God doesn't care for you. Trust King Jesus. Everything in this life is preparing you for an eternal weight of glory. You are being shaped not for a meager existence in this world, but to be glad and rejoice when His glory is revealed. Marriage is not your hope. Children are not your legacy. And your career does not define your value. Your past drug addiction or sexual misconduct doesn't determine your future or joy. Christ does. In Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And so when we are in Him, we can have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. All of these things, marriage, is just a shadow of the pleasures to come. Children are just a picture of our delight in our Heavenly Father. Wealth is a reminder of God's abundant riches that He pours out on us in Christ. If you get the privilege of enjoying some of these earthly shadows, don't rejoice in them, but trust in King Jesus and rejoice that your name is written in heaven. And if your heart aches because some of these joys escape you in this life, remember that your deepest desires were made for Christ. When this world doesn't make sense and nothing seems to fit Your good desires continue to go unsatisfied. Turn from your doubts. Trust King Jesus who loves you and is working for your eternal joy. Let's pray. 
God, that's so hard. It's so hard to see. We are just fish in the water. We are addicts who think we've got it under control. You tell us there's something better. And we see other people enjoying so many pleasures in this life. How can we endure? How can we know that it will be better? We know because you have always been faithful to keep your promises and you promise us this as well. So help us see that Jesus is greater than any of these earthly delights. Trust him to fulfill all our desires in the kingdom to come. Amen.